You are listening to WERALP, Arlington, 96.7 FM. and just tell people what to do. We're going to build this wall, and uh, we're going to get rid of Obamacare. Well, you know, they still haven't gotten rid of Obamacare, and they're hiding whatever weak proposal they've put together to try and do it. And the wall that he was going to build, the big, beautiful wall, um, now he's coming to the taxpayers and saying, well, I need you to pay for it, even though he had said during the campaign, I'm going to make them pay for it, and now I'm going to make them reimburse me. So the man is not trustworthy. Uh, he makes promises. As a matter of fact, I wonder sometimes if he's not taking his cues from Putin. Well, you are listening to WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron, and we have a great show for you on this afternoon. I'm so pleased to be doing the stuff that I do every Wednesday. It is really a joy to cover some of the stuff that I've been covering uh, because it's stuff that I'm interested in and because, um, you know, I hope that other people uh, have some interest in it as well. But... On today's program, there was a piece out in The Atlantic and subsequently in other uh, print publications regarding poverty, the middle class, and the steps that the U.S. has taken to uh, kind of eradicate the middle class. And Peter Temin, the author of the book, The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy, will be joining us on the program today. I was so excited to actually get this book, to read it, and to see, you know, what he was thinking about. He is a economist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was previously at Harvard. So he knows a thing or two about the economy and its after effects. So I'm pleased to have Peter Temin on the program today to talk about his new book. This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron, and we will be right back after this. This is WERALP 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. I'm This is Enlighten Me. I'm your host, Andrea Cambron. And I am so excited to be joined by Peter Temin. He is the author of a new book, The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy. He is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he is joining us to talk about his new book. Mr. Temin, thank you so much for joining me on Enlighten Me. Yes, delighted to be here. Yes. All right. So, uh, you know, you have written this book, and I'm I am actually really excited to talk to you about this book because uh, I've, I read the piece in the Atlantic um, where it talked about the fact that it would take 20 years with nearly nothing going wrong in someone's life to escape poverty. Tell me a little yes. bit about. Uh, you know, what you have written in The Vanishing Middle Class and how, you know, where we have grown up and how we, those, those factors that shape how we develop in society and, and what those those issues are in, in looking at poverty in the United States. Yes, well, uh, The Atlantic was very dramatic. <laughs> uh, but uh, what the book is about is how we rapidly uh, developing into a nation of the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I use a uh, 
model uh, designed uh, in the 1950s by W. Arthur Lewis to speak of this as a dual economy. Mm -hmm. And the characteristic of this model uh, is that the rich sector, which in our case is about 20% of the population, uh, doesn't care at all what happens to the poor sector. Right. And so it concentrates on its own business and neglects the poorer sector, uh, wants only cheap labor from the poorer sector. And so uh, the 20% is determined by incomes, but it corresponds reasonably well to the difference between college-educated people and people with only high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're slightly more college-educated than 20%, but uh, not all of them have done so well. And what I do in the book is describe how we got there and how this relates to the American history of race and so on. And at the end, I have... uh, a description about public education, and uh, one of my recommendations at the end is that we improve public education, and uh, that's what the writer for The Atlantic picked up on it, because I argue in the text that uh, this is a hard road to follow. Yeah. Uh, for example, in the model that was written in the 1950s to think about developing countries, a lot of people went from the farmland to the cities to try and look for work in what was then the industrializing or trading center of capitalist activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not all of them made it. And so you have a lot of slums in the developing country. And so what's happening in the United States is we're beginning to look like that, where our inner cities uh, are reverting into being slums. And the education uh, in the model, the way to get from the lower sector to the higher sector was to try and move to the to the uh, city uh, and find a job. In in our case, it's to try and get a college degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a necessary but not sufficient pro- uh, prerequisite for getting into the higher sector. But what I say in the book is that this is hard for people uh, in today's economy for uh to uh, to achieve for two reasons. One reason is the reason that the uh, Atlantic picked up, which is it descri- it requires concentration for about 20 years. That is to say, you have to stay in school, you have to do well enough to get to the next stage, mm-hmm. and so on. And that's very hard, say, in a black neighborhood where one out of three men goes to jail during his lifetime so that young kids in school, young black men in school say, you know, am I going to be here in 20 years? 
(laughs) And it's very hard to motivate them with that reality staring them in the face. Uh, So uh, that's the one part. The other part is that the government makes it hard. Does the government run by the people in the higher sector, what I call the FTE sector, (laughs) finance, technology, and electronics. Uh, The FTE sector makes it very hard, mostly by neglecting public education and sometimes by actively opposing it in plans for charter schools and for vouchers. Uh, And so it's very hard for the, uh, you know, it makes it doubly hard. Uh, And you can see this most clearly. I mean, I talk about different levels of education in the book, but a vivid example of this that some of your listeners will will know about is uh, the question of state universities, that the states, not just the federal government, state governments are involved, that the state governments have decreased funding for state universities. And as the state university stops getting, gets less and less money from taxation, it has to raise more money by appealing to rich donors, but also by getting raising tuition. Mm-hmm. And so instead of having a... Uh, state university that's essentially free where people had these opportunities to go to school even if they couldn't afford to pay high tuition, uh, what you have is a problem where uh, people need to get money, find money somewhere to attend even a previously uh, public university. Right, right. And so poor people don't have the cash on hand because that requires your parents uh, to have been able to save money for you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all kinds of reasons. And so uh, then the students borrow money. Uh, and so then they get out of college and sometimes they find good jobs, but a lot of times they don't. So right. let me go back to this thing about necessary but not sufficient to get a good job. And the volume of educational debt has skyrocketed in the past uh, decades. Mm-hmm. And so it's now second only to mortgage debt uh, in the United States. Uh, you recall it was mortgage debt that set off the financial crisis right. in 2008. Uh So it it is really not very cheery that we have allowed uh, this debt to grow that large. It's even less cheery for these people uh, who are then kind of trapped in this uh, situation where they owe all this money. They can't think about buying a house or getting married or doing these normal kinds of middle-class activities Mm -hmm. uh, because they're just got so much debt. And while some people talk about this debt as, uh, you know, the $100,000 or $200,000 debt that people have gotten from going to good colleges and so on, a lot of it is smaller debt uh, that people have have, uh, accumulated 
by trying to do a program maybe in a for-profit college mm-hmm. or a community college and then failing to make it even having borrowed the money. Right. And so they're left with low wages and debt, debt that a middle-class person would say, oh, well, you know, we'll pay that off in a month or two, uh, but a debt that uh, these people can't um, devastating. get get their debt uh, yeah. passed. It's quite uh, devastating. We're talking with Peter Temin. He is the author of The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy. He is a, a professor of economy, uh, economist at uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, professor Temin, quickly, um, you know, I have often heard the theory that there never was a uh, requisite for a middle class in the United States. There has always been um, two classes, the, the rich and the poor. Um, how do you square that with the fact that there might not have been uh, any provisions for, for a middle class to begin with, right? So, so, And what I mean by that is, you know, everything is touted, Every all these um, uh, policies are touted towards helping the quote-unquote middle class. Yeah, well, but there's a theory out. Yes, that, okay, you got to go back in history to understand this, because, you know, when the uh, American government was uh, founded in the late 18th century, uh, there wasn't a very large middle class. Right. We, uh, remember, there were people, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a middle class person uh, at that time, but uh, he was just as unusual a character as he was a bright character. Uh, you know, and there are always individuals that you can find because, you know, extraordinary people come from all over the place. Sure. Uh, but then in forming the Constitution, uh, this was actually a compromise between the North and the South. Uh, neither of which had a big middle class, but the North had the beginning of a middle class in a class of yeoman farmers, people who had family farms and uh, worked uh, with that. And people uh, get that's not quite our modern middle class, but it's something like the middle class Mm -hmm. that we have today. But this was a compromise between them and the South where you had rich people and poor whites, uh, but the rich people held slaves. Slaves were by no means a middle class. They weren't allowed to vote, and so on. And our racial prejudice comes from that. Mm -hmm. And some of the peculiarities of our legal system about who can vote and so on still come from that division between whites and blacks. Uh, that had its origins in Southern slavery. Mm -hmm. And so through the history then of the 19th century, there was a kind of uh, checkered progress about who could vote and who could participate and so on. And so some people could vote and some people couldn't and so on. So now we get up into the period after the Second World War. This is a much more familiar context uh, there. So I'm, uh, right. the, <laughs> yes. Then, so after, the, uh, uh, after 1945, the uh, government engaged in a whole variety of programs sure. uh, to build a middle class. Mm-hmm. 
there had been in the interwar period some things for that and so on. So the GI Bill let people go to college. Right. Uh, the support for housing let them go to uh, suburban houses and projects that were going. The uh, interstate highway program made them mobile, but in, more importantly, provided a lot of jobs to uh, to build them and so on. And from these programs, African Americans were excluded. Right. And so this is the legacy of the slavery still evident in our modern world. And so then we had a period, say, roughly from 45 to 75, or 1945 to 1975, in which we could think of ourselves as a middle-class society. And programs to help the middle class were politically viable, Mm -hmm. because there now, as I say, blacks were left out. Women, to some extent, were left out as well. They were okay as long as they were wives, but if they wanted to do something on their own, uh, the the jobs were not open to them. Right. So it's not just... uh, blacks who were excluded. So we shouldn't say that that was a nirvana period, but it was a period with an active middle class. And so the middle class then had factory jobs and the uh, they could have a house in a reasonable place, often subsidized by the, by the employer. Uh, they had a decent school to send their kids to. And they could own a car to to get around or to go traveling. And that's kind of how I define kind gotcha. of being in the middle class. Uh, but uh, starting in the 70s and increasing in the 80s, uh, the factories went away. And that's a product of changing technology with writer, uh, 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 you know, uh, technology with robots and uh uh, scanners electronic, and so yeah. on, kind of electronic devices mm-hmm. replacing people, and also globalization, where the need for less Imports. skilled labor got done in foreign places, and things came in. And so it started a whole process, and that was aided by the deregulation of finance that speeded it. And so we got to a process where we're again reverting to a process uh, where there was no middle class. Mm -hmm. But the people who say there never was a middle class have really skipped over. uh, That that time in the 40s, between the 40s and 70s? That's right, yes. That's the time that the older people today can remember. And so what it is now is with a modern democracy, you know, as I say, this very brief run through of our history shows <laughs> which that, I appreciate. I do. I really do appreciate that. That, 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 yes. that the uh, giving that context. You know, voting, uh, the ability to vote has waxed and waned over uh, many, many uh, years, even a couple centuries, uh, so on. But we had a relatively good period, 
And now we're seems to be moving into a relatively bad period. Okay, so let's and, move. So let's move to that the period that we are in now. Uh, right. You are saying that we are currently moving towards, um, you know, uh, saying that eight percent. You're saying that eight percent of the population um, is anxious about their job security and burdened with debt, and they are moving towards a, an era where we are moving to two separate classes instead of three. Tell us a little bit about this current era that we are in and how we got here and and what are the factors that are shaping where we are at right now? Yes, well, it is complicated, and I referred to the electronics and the finance and technology part of it. Uh, Where we are now is with young people starting out, uh, they a lot of them seem to be in what's called the gig economy, mm-hmm. uh, where they get a succession of short-term jobs. Well, if you have a short-term job, it's very hard for you to uh, plan for uh, uh, to buy a house, to buy a car, to uh, get married and raise a family. Uh, and so you find yourself leading a kind of lower class uh, uh, kind of life mm-hmm. uh, where you're kind of wandering around. Now, these people may be earning good salaries, uh, but it turns out that in order to put down the roots that are needed to have a middle class life, you need to have uh, expectations of a continuing job. Mm-hmm. So in my generation, I'm now no longer a professor. I'm an emeritus professor right, right. at MIT. <laughs> so I've seen this all happening, that people in the immediate post-war period uh, had uh, an expectation of a job so that they could go in buy a house and get a mortgage. And if they earn money, they could get a deduction on the mortgage payments. So mm-hmm. it's even better. The government was encouraging them to do this. Um, they could buy a car on time and so on. They could get married and expect their kids to go to a reasonable, uh, a reasonable uh, school. So that a lot of people now, of young kids, even if they think they're working in the uh, the high tech, uh, uh, don't have that security mm-hmm. and don't feel they can go. Some of them do, and as I say, there are these twenty percent. There are a lot of people who are going on there, but a lot of people can't get there, particularly those who only have a high high school education. Yeah, and so what they are is very frustrated because. Uh, they can see that uh, have this recent history because it's not very far in the past where doing what they do with their skills um, could uh, get them into this kind of middle class life that right. I described. Right. And now those skills are have vanished because either they're done by machines or they're done by not even by Chinese anymore, by Vietnamese or uh, people in Bangladesh mm-hmm. and so on. As this is it's good for the world <clears throat> that there is income in these other countries, uh, 
but it's bad for this class of people. Gotcha. <coughs> okay, so uh, we're here with Peter Temin. He is the author of The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy. Speaking off uh, an offshoot of that point, uh, if you are looking at this new economy and you are a person who has gone to college um, and, and gotten into a profession where you are in a in a career that is um, presumably a quote-unquote middle-class career. You are a professional. You're not a um, service worker. Um, and, and you are a, a young person, like you've said, that has, you know, the education that you would presumably think, you know, you're a teacher, you're a professor, um, you know, that you would think would garner you that middle-class lifestyle. My question to you is, I have seen these reports that professors are, you know, um, um, on welfare. You've seen the the articles where um, teachers are barely making enough to um, live in some of the cities that they are living in, you know, to, to, to be able to teach their students. Do you think the burden sometimes is on the employers to pay their workers enough to sustain themselves in this economy? Well, alas, the uh, businesses don't think it's their responsibility. But you have described exactly kinds of things that I talk about in, in the book. There's a, a teacher, and I think it was Texas, who won the teacher of award at some years mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, met the president. But he wasn't going to get, if he stayed a teacher, an income large enough to be in this upper sector. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, two things about this. Number one is, of course, if they have educational debt, that makes it that much worse. Right. And so that's something that people didn't have in the last thing. Then the point about finance is that uh, the business schools and firms have uh, kind of adopted since the 80s Uh, an idea of what is called shareholder value. Mm -hmm. And this is a notion that businesses are responsible to their shareholders and not to the people who work for them. Mm. And now this comes out in two ways. Number one way is that they try to uh, break the unions and try and get workers to work more cheaply. And then in some businesses where they can do it, they uh, fire the lower-skilled workers, the people who empty the wastebaskets and clean up the offices or whatever, uh, and they hire a company uh, which furnishes cleaning services uh, to come in and do this stuff at night. And then what it has done is to change a wage decision, which is you comment might have had some equity considerations that if you work for a good company, you should make a reasonable wage Mm -hmm. to a pricing decision, to a contract from uh, from the employer's point of view. It's a contract, not not a sale, not a purchase, not a wage. And so it doesn't have any of these equity considerations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so the person doing this work uh, gets uh, a lower salary. So the businesses, for all kinds of reasons, are kind of getting out of the business of 
thinking about their workers, yeah. uh, partly, as I say, because they don't think it's their business, and partly because of the structure of businesses which come from the finance sector of the FTE thing. Now, education is a particular kind of case here because this is part of the government uh, making it difficult for people to get education to get into the uh, higher sector, to the FTE sector, because they don't finance education. And one of the ways they save money is by teaching, by paying teachers terribly. Yeah. And what happens if you go back to the history, if you think about the early 20th century, the late 19th century, when these things were being put together, the uh, teachers were women. And at that point, as I said, women were not really welcome in a lot of jobs. So to be a teacher was a good job. Yeah. And uh, women thought it was interesting. And then when the pill came in around 19, in the 1970s, 70s, yeah. the kind of fateful decade <laughs> where a lot of things changed, it was uh, that then they could be lawyers and doctors. My my daughter, one of my daughters is a doctor, so you know this is this way they could go, mm-hmm. and so consequently, in order to attract good teachers, the wages of teachers needed to go up, yeah, not down, yeah. But because of the rich sector, the people who were getting there right at the same time were saying, "Okay, we can influence policy, so we don't want to." support public education very much. And so teacher salaries went down instead of going up. Mm. And so now people say they can't get into the upper class because they don't have enough money. But that's just people trying to get by. Even more important for the country, as opposed to the individuals, is that the people who would have been wonderful teachers are now lawyers and doctors. Yeah. And so we're losing that in the education of the next generation. Yeah, because it becomes a, a question of survival, and it becomes exactly. a question of, of uh, you know, are you going to make enough to support yourself? Uh, right. And, and if those professions don't garner that that value, valuable, valuable to, um, you know, the people that want to work in those professions, then uh, they won't. Ah. Oh. Professor Temin, I am so pleased to have you on the program. It was a pleasure. Um, I especially uh, enjoyed your insight, um, especially the history of uh, the middle class and, and, you know, looking into some of the causes that um, we are looking at today as far as our economic situation. Um, So I appreciate your insight, and I appreciate you joining me on Enlighten Me today. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, Peter Temin, he is the author of The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy. He's talking about what some of the factors that shape uh, our American inequality and the fact that uh, the classes are so divided now. There is there The Vanishing Middle Class is, is something that I implore you to check out. Please go check out the book. Uh, and Dr. Temin, where can we find uh, the book? Oh, the book is in bookstores, it's on Amazon, so on. You can uh, look at the MIT Press 
catalog. It, it's it's available now. All right. So it was published in March, and so I think it's pretty widely available. <laughs> so please go check out the book. I am. I really encourage you to look at um, the in-depth analysis that uh, Professor Temin has looked at uh, in in some of the the qualities that shape uh, our economy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. Thank you. A pleasure. Bye. All right. This is the show for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I want to thank Peter Temin, the author of The Vanishing Middle Class, Prejudice and Power in a Dual Economy, for joining me today. I really appreciated his insight. This is Enlighten Me on WERALP 96.7 FM. Funding for WERA is provided by Rust Insurance Agency, LLC, a locally owned independent insurance agency since 1889. For more information, visit rustinsurance.com.